Good evening, you are listening to the Three Moves Ahead podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, we have freelance writer, Fraser Brown. Hello! And today we also welcome Amplitude's Jeff Spock to talk about the evolution of Endless Legend, the Endless series, and where things are headed next with Endless Space 2. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's really cool to be here. Or I should say perhaps bonsoir from France. <laughs> uh, I can't even begin to tell you how relieved we all are uh, that you don't have a, a thick French accent uh, in addition to <laughs> Skype compression. Fraser and I were talking before the show, and uh, Fraser is like, every time I've talked to someone from Amplitude, like I've caught every fifth word they're saying, and I'm not sure it's going to be a great <laughs> podcast. If you want to, I can, do the, I can do the Inspector Clouseau thing, if that would be fun. But, yeah. I think that would win over a new generation of French fans. Uh, to be honest, uh, so you should you should feel free to do that. Um, although none of us here are Peter Sellers, so so perhaps we should steer clear of that. Uh, but but let's get let's get started here, uh, Jeff. What what is your role at, at Amplitude? Uh, when did you join the studio, and what was your background prior to the Endless series? My role at the studio is basically the lead narrative writer guy. Um, I got to choose the title, so it's narrative director, which you know really pleases me um, because I was one of sort of the the five founding members. There was Romain and Mathieu, who were the two founders, um, and we were sort of gravitating around them. Corinne, the art director, uh, Eric, who's the lead programmer, and myself were sort of the, the core team that came in once Mathieu and, and Romain had set up the structure. So I've been in this for almost six years now. Um, as far as my background before that, I've been game writing for about 12 years now, before Amplitude, I was doing a lot of freelancing for Ubisoft. Um, and to mention the strategy games I worked on, that would include the Heroes of Might and Magic, number five and number six series, plus Ruse. I don't know if you played that one oh. on ITS. That was. Oh, we oh, yeah. played Ruse, my friend. We Big played facts. Ruse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, Ruse is, oh my goodness, I didn't even know you worked on Ruse. Um, Wow, because yeah, that that is actually like the the official um, like tragically brilliant RTS that that didn't catch on uh, as much as we as much as we wanted. Because I think we devoted uh, multiple episodes basically to singing Ruse's praises uh, as as really innovative and uh, brilliant RTS. Uh, I, I will say I, I I had my issues with the with the campaign uh, a little bit though. With time, I think I've I've mellowed. Uh, especially because uh, really, <laughs> really big budget RTS campaigns are co- becoming harder to come by, and so now I, I long for the Halcyon days of Ruse and a slightly overwrought uh, version of World War II. Yeah, well, it was. Uh, I have to say, it was a really fun project. I think the gameplay and the design of that is just phenomenal. The mixing of sort of poker and RTS it was a lot of fun. I think they had great ideas. It was a great game to work on. We had. A lot of fun with the cutscenes. We did mocap with the actors. The only time I've ever done mocap was way back at Ruse, but uh, it was a great experience for me. And I'm, I exactly, we're all sitting around thinking, okay, when's it going to take off? When is everybody going to see how great this is? Never quite got there. I think it proved maybe that a lot of players are maybe a little bit more conservative than they'd like to to let on, and they just it was maybe a little bit too new, bit too groundbreaking for them. I think that could be. A, you know, it's it's not an easy sell. Anytime you're mixing genres, it's well, well. I don't know if you'd call it mixing genres because it really is at its core an, an RTS. But all the the espionage and the bluffing and and the, the things you could do with it um, brought in a lot of elements that were not traditional. And uh, and you're right, it's a hard sell. I think I would say the same thing for Dungeon of the Endless when they say, okay, what kind of game was that? And you start listing the genres it sort of steals from, and it's 
it's hard to package. It's hard to market, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think this is one of the frustrating things, I mean, across games, but but I think maybe it's extra frustrating in strategy because I think there's a bit of, I would say self-image, right? Like that among strategy gamers that we're a little more open to innovative designs. Like, I mean, how many, how many times, like Fraser, have you been on a strategy forum and you've read like sort of people poo-pooing, uh, you know, people who buy the new uh, military FPS uh, du jour again and again and sort of make fun of like, oh, these, you know, the, these sorts of gamers, these console gamers, you know, buy the same crap every year. But strategy gamers, you know, are, <laughs> are open to new experiences and, and all sorts of new ideas. But I think, you know, from time to time, uh, new ideas just don't really get a fair hearing. And I feel like Ruse is one of those cases where um, it was so unlike traditional RTSs uh, in much the way like, you know, the Kohan series was as well, uh, that that it, it just didn't get embraced by sort of fans of that genre. And, you know, I think people outside the genre have, have kind of written off uh, RTS games uh, in general, uh, which which can be a bit frustrating. But, you know, I would say that Endless Legend was kind of a, a heartening exception to that rule. Um, maybe we're jumping ahead a little bit in, in, in the conversation, but that was a 4X that really addressed a lot of my increasing issues with that genre uh, by breaking with a lot of tradition and putting focus in really unusual and weird areas uh, compared to a lot of a lot of other Forex games uh, I've encountered. But that seemed to really strike a chord, not just on this podcast, but with a lot of players. That's, that's very reassuring to hear. I mean, um, when we started Amplitude, we were all big fans of Forex games in general. And the problem we had was that um, Mathieu and Romain presented some ideas for, basically for a, a sort of proto-endless space to Ubisoft. And Ubisoft said, you know, you guys do good work. These are nice ideas, but we don't do strategy games. So the only way to do it was to go and do it ourselves. Um, and we'd been, you know, sort of waiting, I think, as a lot of strategy gamers were for, you know, almost decades for the, you know, for the next Master of Orion 2. Um, and, you know, Sins of the Solar Empire, which, by the way, has maybe the best title ever for, for a, oh, a space game. Easily. Easily. <laughs> Phenomenal. Can, can you imagine if that had a narrative attached to it? I, I know. I mean, I, what an opportunity, you know. Um, and there was and, and Gal Siv, of course, sort of the stars, and there's a lot of things out there. But we we basically sat down and said, look, this is an amazing genre that doesn't get its due. And the things that, you know, I have to say from a very French creative point of view, we're saying, what's wrong with it? Well, the user interfaces are I mean, half half of the effort of some of these games is not trying to get your strategy to work. It's trying to figure out how to get your strategy to work because of the user interface. Um, so one big thing we had was the user interface. Another thing, of course, was the look and feel in general and the quality of the art. I mean, you didn't really see a lot of games putting huge amounts of effort and time and money into the look and the style and the polish. Um, you know, but we're French. <laughs> we, can't, we can't help that. You know, it's, it's kind of in, our, in the DNA of the people. Um, I was born in the U.S., so I'm a little different, but I, I've been infected, I guess. Um, and so space was really our first attempt to do that. And, and, you know, it was made with about 12 people in about 18 months. And that shows. But there was a lot of other things we wanted to do, a lot of other ideas we had. Um, and luckily, we were able to start bringing some of those out, 
we had the money, we, had, we could invest, we had the time, we could really do what we wanted with, uh, with Endless Legend. I kind of feel like um, that uh, inspiration from, from Master of Orion to try and make a kind of another Master of Orion 2, I could feel that in Endless Space, but I think sometimes that's to its detriment. I think a lot of 4X games are trying to hit that high note again when they maybe should be treading new ground instead instead of going back to something 20 years old. Yeah, not, not, to, not to plug uh, my other podcast, uh, but on, on Idle Weekend, uh, which I recorded with Danielle Riendo uh, lately of uh, Vice's Waypoint, um, a few weeks ago we had uh, Alexis Kennedy on the show uh, from uh, Fallen London and Sunless Sea, and now he's sort of a, uh, uh, fr- a freelance uh, narrative uh you know, consultant and designer uh, for hire, uh, in addition to his own projects. But but the the thing he made that really struck me is that uh, people don't want uh, people like say they want a new game in a series or something. But what they really want is the experience of playing the first game in a series again for the first time. They're, 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 and I'm, I'm butchering the quote a bit, but uh, the, the, what people are nostalgic for uh, isn't even necessarily the design itself or, or another iteration on it. What they're nostalgic for is the sensation uh, that they, the sensations they experienced when they first encountered something uh, that really excited them. I think that's very true. And there's a, there's a pretty funny quote that I'm going to horribly misquote, but I think it was Neil Gaiman who said, that you know, when, when an author writes a novel, he actually writes two novels. There's the one you read when you were like 16 and it changed your world. And then the one you went back and reread when you were 30 and you're like going, is that all? You know, it's, you know? And, and I think that for gaming, it's very similar. I mean, you know, we, I, I have these memories of, uh, I mean, Civ 2, I sunk just an, an embarrassing amount of time into. You know, and 15 years later, I went back and played it and I was thinking, well, yeah, this is this is diverting, but you know, <laughs> wh- wh- why did I obsess like that? Um, and and I think it's very true that there's 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 a moment in an experience that people are trying hard to recapture, but you and I agree you can't do that in imitating the mechanics because that's the part that's been there, done that, and you have to find some other way to give that kind of sensation. But you can't do it just by you know copying the same mold. You can see it so clearly with the with a new Master of Orion uh, that came out this year, uh, because it's it is a lot like uh, one and two, but it's pretty disappointing because you realize four X games have come a long way in twenty years. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, kudos to the team for doing it. I think they did a really nice, really polished job of it. But uh, my my feeling was that, in spite of all its qualities, it didn't. It, it didn't move the genre anywhere. It didn't break any new ground or it didn't break as much new ground as maybe, you know, they could have with their budgets that we're kind of jealous of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, well, I think that's one of the, what we've tried to make that one of the, the real um, calling cards of Amplitude is, is that we're, we're going to try to do things different, push some boundaries, break some of the gameplay systems. It might be unbalanced. It might not work. It might not make everybody happy, but you know, we want to kick around the, this this potentially overused and ancient genre that we're playing around, and and really try to do to find some corner where we can innovate. So you, we sort of uh, broached this a little bit in the in the pre-show Skype chat, 
Um, but but you mentioned that before coming on this podcast, you went back and listened to our to our endless space one uh, podcast uh, that we did, which uh, which I only half remember. And uh, you know, I should stress, I was I was way younger uh, in those, when endless space <laughs> one came out. Uh, I was maybe uh, somewhat less uh, temperate in my opinions, um, but. If I recall what my criticisms were of the game at launch, and we never did a show sort of revisiting Endless Space 1 um, and doing a sort of a state of the game podcast the way we have some other strategy games, but my feeling with Endless Space 1 was that it was very beautifully produced and it worked very well in, in you know, the important like uh, mechanical uh, senses. But it lacked a certain uh, a certain heart that it was uh, at least at launch a somewhat uh, bland universe that sort of hinted at like interesting story possibilities. But like as you were playing it, it wasn't really bringing any of those themes to life. Uh, was was my feeling, and that was kind of my my overarching objective because. Uh, really, I, I hate every four uh, X that isn't Alpha Centauri, and that's my cross to bear. <laughs> and that's the, that's the lens I bring to every discussion of a four X. Uh, but I, I am curious, um, you know, what sort of jumped out of, out at you in, in our discussion of of that game, and uh, you know, w- you know where you disagree, and uh, you know where where you might agree. Let, let 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 me pull this knife out of my chest before I answer you. Okay? <laughs> Um, no, I think it, it's funny because we we sort of felt that we had developed this really interesting universe. Um, but then, you know, it's from the point of view of the people who knew all the backstories and read all the faction documents and the background lore we'd written and that sort of thing. And it didn't really, it wasn't clear enough to us until the game shipped and people started commenting that that really didn't come out as you played the game, unfortunately. Um, and it was funny because we had some people who would really... Um, look sort of between the lines and sort of imagine their own story and imagine the continuation. And they found the universe rich and fascinating. But there are an awful lot of people, I would say a depressing uh, number of people who said, it's a big empty game uh, in a big dark space with sort of no heart to it and no soul to it. Um, so yeah, so like once once I was finished weeping uh, <laughs> and we and we sat down to start working on, on Legend and see what we could do differently, um, we changed an awful lot of things. I mean, when, when Endless, the day Endless Space shipped, we didn't even have any sort of event. Um, you know, a pop-up of an anomaly, something happens when you visit a new star system. There was nothing. I mean, it was really just the bare-bones 4X mechanics. And over the course of the game, we did add some things in. We added... Some events we had the we you know we did some chained events that some of which the community helped us design. So we tried to add a little more sort of you know packaging around just the the core gameplay systems, but we never really got that far. So so a big thing on the board for Legend was to bring more of that kind of imagination and and depth and content and richness and sort of my. My, my sort of narrative philosophy for a 4X game is you can't, you can't tell a traditional narrative in a 4X, 4X game. You can't do an Uncharted in a 4X game, you know, unless you build a single-player campaign. But, okay, that's, that's not our philosophy. That's not how we do it. 
So all you can really do is have a lot of things in the universe, events that are happening, the texts that you read, the heroes that you hire, um, the quests that pop up. All of that has to suggest something that's larger and richer and deeper and more interesting. And what happens is that, um, okay, you guys should probably slow me down because I could talk about game narrative for like an hour and a half. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> Keep going. Go for it, man. This is, this is, this is what we're here for. Okay. Um, the, the idea is that it becomes a story, instead of the traditional game story that's told by the designer, it becomes a story told by the player with the designer's tools. Uh, and that's, that's a really huge change of point of view. One of the reasons there wasn't much story in Endless Space is, you know, I came from working on games like Heroes of Might and Magic and Ruse, um, Darkness Eye of Might and Magic, you know, some really fun games, but that had, you know, traditional Aristotelian story structures to them where you have an opening, an inciting incident, mounting action, a climax, you know, that, that whole sort of thing. And, you know, you look at a 4X game where everything's randomly generated, you can't say this will happen there because there might not be generated there. It might be generated somewhere else. You, can't, you don't know what other factions will be in the game. Um, so you, you really don't have any of these traditional story crutches that you can use. And so for that reason, we spent a lot of time working on the lore of the universe and very little working on the lore in the game itself. Because quite honestly, we weren't sure where to put it and how to use it. Um, and I think, of course, that changed enormously with, with Endless Legend, where we at least had the terrain, and the terrain itself is such an important part of the game and speaks so much to the player when you're exploring, when you're building, when you're in your battles. The terrain is incredibly important. It's like another character there. And, uh, and the graphics are much more colorful and much more present and much more sort of in your face. So those are already really nice tools that you can sort of build some narrative around. But then we added the faction quests, of course, where we had a bit of this sort of traditional linear storytelling structure that, we're, you know, that, that people are comfortable with in the game as well. And I think the combination of all these different things just made for such a, a rich tapestry in which the player would play and still tell his own story, but with far more tools and backdrop and settings and all sorts of objects to use to invent the, his own story of, of his, his or her empire development. So I think that's why there, there's such a big difference between the two games. Now, I have a like, really important question to that. Like, was, was all that like based on sort of your, your key learnings from the Endless Space 1 uh, experience? Or did you also find it easier to do that stuff when you had a terrestrial 4X where you could have like... Uh, richly detailed terrain and uh, you know lots of city art and, and stuff like that and really like dig into uh, sort of the design and expression uh, of these races like I'm like one of the, the things that we often return to on the show is like is there something sort of inherently like challenging about making space compelling as a narrative setting um, in a 4x uh, where it's sort of got to be infinitely repeatable uh, as opposed to something set on on a planet, uh, as, as opposed to something set on Earth, uh, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, was it just like that you learned a lot between Endless Space One and Endless Legend, or was the change in setting also helpful in letting you address some of those issues? It it was definitely both of those. I, I think uh, space is in and of itself a difficult place to tell a story because 
you know, you zoom out on the map, most of the time you're looking at a constellation or a galaxy map. And it's, you know, white lines with points. And there's not, you know, there's not a whole lot of feedback there. There's no wind. There's no weather. There's no... If there's a random army wandering around, it's a little ship icon. It's just... You, you, you don't have the sort of uh, flavor and tapestry there for your imagination to start filling in the cracks with. And I think in, in 4X, more than in most genres, you have... What's really, really important is this effect that you get in comics... Um, I don't know if you guys know uh, Scott McCloud. He did a couple of ama- a number of amazing books about understanding understanding comics and making comics. And, and the, ins- the thing about graphic novels is, in between two frames of a graphic novel, your mind does something amazing to fill in all the story that you don't see. Right? I mean, you see an axe in one frame, and the next frame you're at a funeral. And you don't have to put anything else in there because the human mind has been trained since birth to fill in all the narrative that's lacking. And I think when in space, there's just the gap is just too big. There's not enough for your imagination to work on to start developing your own story, or it's it's at least much more difficult. Um, but when you have what I think is an amazing art department like Amplitude, and you have the terrain like Endless Legend. And you can do all these amazing little minor factions in their villages. And, the, and then you can start popping up quests. And, and, and you see the quest marker pop up in the region next door. And you, and you have the ruins and the temples and things. All of a sudden, it's, it's just a much, much more fertile field for our imagination to go play in. And it's, it's just so much easier as a, as a player to become immersed in it and as, as a narrative person to develop for it. Um, one quest that always... Uh jumps back to me when when I'm thinking about Endless Legend is it was quite an early one for I think it was the, the Broken Lords who are the the vampire uh, chaps who are quite unpleasant um, yeah. was it was when you were dealing with a, a political rival uh, and you were forced into putting him in a position of power so giving him like a city to govern uh, so he's like a sort of hero unit and even though everything was like the, the geography was randomized and where I put the city, you know, you guys couldn't have known where I was going to put the city. Um, but it felt all like it was directed and curated. Because so when I gave him his city to look after, suddenly that didn't just become this, this place that I plonked down to generate more dust or whatever. It was all, it actually became this kind of uh, bastion for like my political rivals and I remembered that city and even after that quest was over and he was no longer the governor I never forgot that city and I was always a little bit pissed off with it um, <laughs> I never quite made it as lovely as the rest of my cities and um, so it always feels like there's there's someone sort of directing it even though this was all up to me and random chance that's great uh, that's that's do you have any idea how heartwarming it is? That, that made up for everything Rob said before, okay, about Space One. <laughs> I wasn't the only one. Look, there were multiple people for, like, who, were, who were at that podcast. No, sadly, there, were, there are actually a lot of people who said that. Now, it's, that was the, the real challenges we have when we're trying to develop this kind of traditional narrative is you know, taking into account all of the roadblocks you have um, because of procedural generation uh, and because you can't, you know, we can't say, well, then we'll have them fight the necrophages. Yes, but if there are no necrophages, they can't, right? Um, so the, 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 the writers and the designers spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, what, what little mini challenge can we do for this chapter that will be interesting narratively 
uh, and that will make sense sort of in the arc of the gameplay as far as difficulty, uh, as far as what up, what uh, gameplay systems are available and well-developed. So we, we go through a lot of this sort of trying to work out, you know, the, the sort of the, the dance of, of design and um, the, the point that the game is developed and the narrative itself. And it's, uh, it's, an, it's an interesting challenge. I mean, it's very different from working on like a might, Heroes of Might and Magic, where you know, as you're developing the concept for the game, you're sort of saying, okay, and these are going to be the heroes, and they'll be from these factions, and they'll have these storylines, so we know we need these maps. And then the designers go and they make these maps. And, you know, it, it's, it's it's such a radically different process to sit there and think, okay, well, we, we want to give them a hero who's a bad guy, um, but we can't, like, make the hero actually make the player play worse because then that gives a, an advantage to the other players in the game that he's playing against. So it has to be fair to the player, but interesting story-wise. And so, you know, we, we, we do spend an awful lot of time trying to invent these kinds of situations. And it, it's just enormously pleasing to hear that that worked out like that for you. I, th- I think increasingly, because um, what you're saying about balance and, and making it fair in the players, I think balance is often the enemy of a good story. Uh, like, I totally, I understand, especially in games that are you know, not necessarily predominantly multiplayer, but will always have this kind of multiplayer aspect to them. It, it's, you've got to have that balance but it can just get in the way of a good yarn. Uh, I think uh, you know, Paradox have sometimes said uh, things like uh, about balance. Uh, it, it shouldn't always be balanced. And I think they've got uh, a bit of an out when they're dealing with history because history wasn't balanced. But these, uh, you know, when you have superpowers and minor powers and the player can play someone quite weak and unassuming and have to deal with these epic challenges, that can al- often be more fun. I think some of the the faction design, uh, and I'm I'm seeing it in in Endless Space too. But I, you know, it's uh, it was really obvious in Endless Legend. It's not all about balance. It's having these kind of very exotic, different races that work very differently and maybe aren't always as viable for certain strategies, but create interesting stories. That's that's very much what we um what, what we try to do. Um, first of all, hats off to Paradox, who make amazing games. Um, they, they do have the advantage of history, but still, and you, and you have to not mind the, the complexity. But if you get into them, at, you know, the decisions of who you marry and who your heirs are, and where, it's just it, the stories that come out of that, just through, through the emergent gameplay, I think are, are really pleasing and really entertaining. Um, you know, I. I don't think I've ever actually finished one of their games because <laughs> they, they tend to run pretty long. But um, yeah, I think the it, it's an, another one of our hallmarks is kind of the the asymmetry, which we wanted to start doing in, in Space One, um, but didn't really get into in, until Legend, where we say, okay, we're, we're gonna we're gonna develop a faction that can't use food, and you know the creative director Roman will just throw that out. Let's make some guys who, who can't use food. So it's like okay. So Jeff, what's their lore? Designers, how are they, how are they going to play? What are they going to do? You guys work together, come up with something, and we'll see what happens. And it's a, it's, it's a really fun creative process to go through. But, you know, there's an awful lot of iterations. And they'll say, okay, Jeff, we need an idea for a faction that, you know, the, the stealth faction, what are they going to be like? And, you know, the, what ended up as the forgotten 
They were originally like a sort of doppelganger, shape-changer faction, and they went through a few other iterations. And at first, they were going to be imitating other units on the field of battle and things like that. And, you know, and it goes through so many changes because the design doesn't work or the programming's too tough. You know, and we have to keep rewriting the narrative and restructuring everything. But it's, I mean, it's a, it's a really entertaining, creative challenge. And I think at the end of the day, what we end up with is, you know, if we have eight factions in a game, it's not quite, but it's almost like eight different games or, or definitely eight different ways to approach the same challenge of, you know, explore, expand, exploit, exterminate. And that's, that's something that I think is, uh, it, it's good it's really good, I think, because we want a player who wants to be, you know, Caesar or a player who wants to be Gandhi or a player who wants to be, uh, you know, an oil baron. You know, they're all, they're all going to want to have their own style and their own gameplay. And they should each have a faction that they can play that will give them that gameplay. What we don't want is for them to play every faction that way, uh, because then somehow it means that it's all been kind of averaged out. To, to something that loses its character and its challenge and its difference when you switch from faction to faction. So there's kind of an inherent contradiction, though, in a 4X-like Endless Legend to some extent that I've, that I've always felt. And maybe it's not inherent. Maybe, uh, maybe you disagree with this. But what I've always sort of found interesting and challenging uh, as I play a game like Endless Legend, uh, and, th- and there are other games that sort of follow this this pattern to an extent as well. Um, uh, the elemental games, uh, Slash Fallen Enchantress, a lot of your, sort of your magical 4Xs that are a little more uh, narrative-based. On the one hand, the 4X genre uh, does tend to try to follow rough balance, right? Like, there might be asymmetric balance, but but by and large... Uh, things should should roughly be be balanced, and and more importantly, uh, it's more about sort of the big macro picture uh, than it is about the micro. But anytime you sort of introduce uh, quest lines, uh, hero units, um, and, and really a lot of the trappings of of a good fantasy world, it sort of seems like the two objectives begin to run at cross purposes a little. Like, for instance, one of the things that made me be a really bad endless legend uh player for a long time is that i tended to play it as a very like a traditional 4x where like my focus was on my cities and heroes were predominantly there to like maybe buff up my cities and stuff like that and like you know lead an army around the map but like i didn't i didn't do a lot of like heroic quests uh with my heroes because i was like well fundamentally it's about teching up and, and, and you know, upgrading units and, and getting better technology and, and going out and conquering. And what I realized, you know, sort of after many failed games was that, actually, no, I, it's, to an extent, I also needed to embrace the fact this is, this is a fantasy story. And I do sort of need my, my A-list of heroes uh, out there with like their legendary armies <laughs> going out and getting um, not only like exploring the map, but also like getting a lot of extra levels and getting a lot of the free stuff you get if you complete quests. Um, and if I didn't aggressively pursue that, if I didn't sort of get out of that macro 4X mindset where everything's very incremental and very procedural and start sort of you know, to, to channel Star, uh, Star, Star Trek a little bit, like to start, like I need to start boldly going uh, with these heroes. <laughs> I wasn't going to have much luck 
Um, and that's, that's not so much a complaint as it is like you're dealing in a genre that sort of behaves according to uh, these rules that kind of by design are, are very predictable. But then what a fantasy setting like this and what narrative and, and, and what we want from narrative, uh, what both of those things push you to do is create the unexpected, uh, create uh, the, the thing that doesn't maybe, you know, logically follow from standard operating procedure and encourage people to pursue those as well. And that was something I always felt that was a, was a way that like Endless Legend was perhaps not at odds with itself, but it made a very difficult game to sort of get a handle on sort of the correct way to play it. And that's a problem I don't have with Civ anymore, in, in, in part pre- perhaps because we're now six, <laughs> we're six games into that series. Uh, but, uh, it's, but I've also felt it with games like uh, Fallen Enchantress where, oh, it's a 4X, but then it also follows this other logic uh, that isn't sort of native to 4X. And I'm, and I'm curious if, if that's something you've sort of experienced on your side or uh, whether I'm completely out at sea here. No, I think, I think that's, a, that's a very good point. And um, one of the things that, uh, you know, we're, we sort of want to do is to bring more RPG-ish elements um, into the 4X because just for the, for the lore, for the story, the narrative, the background, the, the sort of the immersion in the cultures and in the game world and, uh, and the player's desire to sort of fight for his people and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's a deliberate choice to, to add these RPG-ish elements that are, you know, not necessarily pure uh, 4X. And that's, that's very true. And Civilization is clearly a game that, that is much more in the classic structure of a 4X. I mean, it's, you know, it's the 400-pound 400, 400 in the room, right? I mean, that's, that's what everyone dreams of, um, having sales like that. Um, so, so yeah, there is a, I mean, there is, there's necessarily a tension when you're mixing genres like that. And I think, uh, for some people, they found the, the need to do the quests, um, because I, you know, the idea of the faction quest is you go through, you live your faction story, you get a really nice bonus at the end, and then you're ready for the end game. And that, that was kind of a conscious decision that, yeah, we really do want the player to do that. Um, and so, you know, you can legitimately say, hey, you know, hey, Jeff, no, say Roma, tell my boss, you know, that's, that's maybe not the best way to do it. That's not a real 4X. It's, and, and, you know, and all I can say is, yeah, if you, if you want that pure um, city building, tech tree following, empire structuring 4X, we're not always going to do things that way. Um, but that's, you know, that's just the desire from the creative team to, to play with the mold a little bit, to inject some other things in there, to mix things up a little bit. And, you know, and, and for some people that will make the game uh, less understandable and less approachable, which is, which is not good. We hope that for enough other people, it makes it more interesting because, you know, we do, we do love this genre, but we would like to expand it, you know, come on in, play in our sandbox. It's fun. It's interesting. It's got pretty colors. It has good stories. That's, you know, that's, it's clearly that's part of what we're trying to do. It still has every element of a 4X game. All 4Xs are there. I just think then there's also the addition of an RPG element as well. And I I think I maybe came at it from the other side of things. Uh, Unlike Rob, I actually played 
at, at first endless legend like an rpg um i didn't pay as much attention to my cities and districts and things like that and instead it was all about sending off my heroes on these grand adventures off the other you know the other side of the world to try and find artifacts or complete quests because i wanted to get to the next like story point and get these you know the new abilities and things like that but then i started realizing obviously to have the more powerful heroes i'd need to get like better gear and thus i'd need to start you know, looking for new resources and expanding my cities and things like that. And it can just fell together kind of naturally reintroduced me back to the, the more typical 4X stuff. Um, it took a bit of time to get used to, but I think it actually has a flow that makes sense. Oh, that's interesting. That, well, it's reassuring as well. I think it, it, it's almost kind of a meta balance question, you know, as to, to how far you push uh, which elements of the game I think uh, for to make Rob happy <laughs> that Space Two. I mean, we're gonna have you know we have the faction quests. Um, we have a lot more event and quest content. Um, but again, because of what we spoke about earlier, that you don't have this the, the you know sort of the physical uh, tissue of the terrain to work on. Uh, it's necessarily a bit more abstract. You're necessarily sort of a step back from the RPG elements. And that might you might be finding yourself playing that a little bit more traditionally uh, in the, you know, build up this system, find a new system, build up that system. The heroes are going to be useful and important, but it's I, I think the RPG element will be a little a little lighter than it is in, uh, in in Endless Legend. And that's, you know, again, it's partially it's the subgenre of the genre that we're in. Um, and it, well, and it's something. We've only done one and a half, one of one and one and a half of the other, and so we're still learning this stuff. I mean, I've I've played uh, I played some of the the early access version. I did I noticed that the heroes' role, even though it was overall, it was quite similar to to the heroes in in Endless Legend. They did feel more like explorers a lot of the times rather than heroes, or at least the ones that you're standing at. I mean, there's even an explorer uh, type, isn't there? A sort of class. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So it's you know it's uh, yeah we're part part of the there's there's sort of always a bit of a tension between um, the standards and the conventions of the genre you're in and the changes you want to make and your desire to deliver you know an interesting package uh, in the in the final analysis and so that's that's one of the that's one of the places because uh, Space One had so little of it Endless Legend had a lot of it. Um, we're really kind of still feeling our way in space too. And that's a lot of that is why we love putting our games out in early access because, you know, you can have 40 really smart people in a studio doing stuff, but when like 5,000 other smart people start giving their ideas, you start thinking, oh wait, oh yeah, okay. And that's because it's very hard to balance a game like this on our own. It's essentially what we think it's impossible. So the, the, the bringing in the community and using early access is, is really key. So one one question, because um, I, I know that Endless Legend was with uh, Iceberg Interactive, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, but my understanding is Endless Space Two is not. Uh, are you are you now self publishing or like what's what's what? Take us take us through sort of the uh, where where the Endless <laughs> series and Amplitude sits in, in regards to public publishers and. Uh, sort of the, the shifting way we finance and publish games these days. 
Rob, you're behind the times now. Yeah. <laughs> Big yeah go time. ahead. You take this one, Fraser. Oh, no, go ahead. It's, it's your exciting news that you can give him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, in the beginning, basically, um, we, we had a bunch of, 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 of good We had a good team, and we knew we were going to make a decent game. Um, and even though we have a really sharp marketing guy, uh, you know, none of us had ever had gone out there and actually released a game to the market. And so there was, there was a big hurdle, a big thing we had to learn there. Because, you know, most of us had been, I was freelancing for Ubisoft. A lot of the others were employees there. You know, there's a whole staff that does that. So we're building this game and we realize we need help here. You know, there's this whole area of game development called business that, that we just don't know enough about. Um, and so we talked to a few people and ended up working with Iceberg for Endless Space One. That went really well. Um, we learned a lot about, about publishing, about the markets, about the industry, about the, the shows, the, the, the journalists, the media outlets, the websites. I mean, as you know, it was a real, it was a real learning process. Um, Dungeon of the Endless, because uh, that was a, a smaller game and a very, very different game from Space One, we decided to self-publish. Um, part of that was because we had a really good relationship with Steam already. Uh, and it was going to be Steam only. We weren't going to try to put copies in stores and worry too much about trying to sell through other outlets. So Dungeon was basically a Steam only amplitude published game. Um, but for Endless Legend, you know, we, we thought about it and we decided we'd go back, we'd use our partner Iceberg again. And, and again, it was a good thing. I mean, they, they got us space at trade shows. They you know, got us visibility in, in a lot of the media outlets and that sort of thing. Um, what happened uh, starting about 18 months ago is a lot of fairly substantial companies started knocking on our doors saying, hey, how about a publishing contract with us? Or have you ever thought of being part of a larger group? And our, our response was always, now we're pretty happy right now. We like our independence. We want to stay where we are. But what we discovered sort of during 2015 is that with the speed of change in the marketplace and all of a sudden, our, our little solo 4X space niche that was suddenly stuffed with enormous high-quality competitors, we, you know, we needed help with this. Uh, and so what we ended up doing is going through a whole process of finding a buyer for the studio. And as of July this year, we are now part of Sega Corporation. You are, you, you have joined the, uh, you've joined the strategy stable at, at Sega. <laughs> I, I mean, is there anything more awesome for like a company that was a startup of five people in a guy's apartment six years ago? I mean, this is incredible. You know, we're with Relic and Creative Assembly Sports Interactive as part of Sega. So we're, we're really excited. So they're our publisher now. And, it, and the difference is just amazing as far as the quality of support, the exposure we get, the, 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 the materials and the press and everything that's available to us. So now, now we publish with Sega. We are Sega. I can't really think of, of many publishers that make as much sense uh, as, as Sega, given you know, Relic and Creative Assembly uh, and how much work they've done with them. Uh, it, it, it seems like a sort of a natural progression. Yeah, I mean, it, there was their their pitch was really good <laughs> about how much indep- about how much independence they'll give us and that sort of thing. Um, you know, but you talk to the guys from Relic and Creative Assembly, and it's true. I mean, you know, five ten years on, they're they're both great studios putting out great games. Uh, Sega is amazing marketing and publicity support, and it's it you know and, and you know and we sort of feel like. 
we're still a little bit like, you know, the freshman who walks into a dormitory full of seniors, you know, <laughs> cr- cr- creative assembly, you know, it's, it's amazing, but, uh, but it's, it's a great place to be. And it's, you know, it's, I, you know, it's, I, hopefully, you know, this is, you know, the, the, the ink is still kind of dry, get, it's still wet on the contract. Um, but hopefully a year or two from now, you know, you, you this will, will have a presence and a, and an ability to, to, to market and publicize our games that will make an enormous difference for us. So we're super excited about that. See, this being news to Rob upsets me because it proves that he didn't read my scintillating article on the Sega acquisition. <laughs> <laughs> you write places? <laughs> oh, burn. Uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the evolution of, uh, of Endless Legend itself, because I think one, one of the other reasons we wanted to sort of revisit this game is that, um, you know, we, we really enjoyed it at launch. Um, we were also, when, when we started discussing it the first time, uh, we were still trying to figure out really like where we all came down on it, because it was like, we knew we liked it. Uh, but but I think Rowan Kaiser at the at our end of year show uh, a, a year or so so ago uh, remarked that he was possibly his game of the year uh, despite him not knowing whether knowing for sure whether it was a good strategy game or not. Um, yeah, I heard that one. Yeah, and I you know I, I sort of I sort of love the way he characterized that because it was it was a case where. Uh, I think the journey was so much more, like, not so much more fun, but the, the journey was so rewarding that it was easy to play Endless Legend without being too concerned about the destinations that it, that it sort of offered. Um, and especially with, as I was figuring out the game, there was an awful lot of, like, restarting as, like, I like realized, like, oh, it's mid-game and I'm just getting rolled by more powerful heroes, uh, stuff like that. Uh, but the game, like, continued to grow and evolve quite a bit and sort of start layering in systems uh that you know you find in other 4x's that were sort of absent from uh from from endless legend at launch so so i want to talk a little bit uh about that that evolution uh was it was it always sort of the plan that there were certain mechanics or systems that you you'd have to revisit later uh after launch or was it a process of coming back looking at the state of endless legend and then sort of going to the whiteboard and thinking about like what you'd want to tweak or add. That's yeah, that's that's a really good question. We um basically with with Space One, there's a few things. I mean, you know, we were just a startup. We weren't many people. We built the game. Uh, the architecture was really band aids and bailing wire. And basically, the reason that we only did one expansion for Endless Space was that that's that's literally all we could do. With with the code we had, um, we would have done more, but we couldn't. So when we started Endless Space, uh, sorry, Endless Legend, we made a much more robust architecture, planning ahead that we would be doing DLCs, we would be adding factions. So we, you know, we sorted. We wanted a, a much more stable platform, um, and then you know things like espionage. Espionage is always something you want to have in a game, and you know a few months before launch, we know it's not going to be there, and so. Okay, there you go. We have to put it in afterwards. You, you, you know, you, you can't really do a good 4X game with no espionage whatsoever. So there, there's certainly systems that we look at and we think, yeah, we want that in the game. And then, you know, but you're developing a product that has a ship date. And so at some point you have to sit down there and make some hard decisions about what's in, what's out. Um, I, I think something that we try really hard to do, and, and I think it's been appreciated, is that we don't just toss the game over the wall 
and then make you pay for DLCs. We, we keep delivering tons of free content once the game is shipped. Um, sure, there's patches and things like that, but lots of upgrades, lots of additional things. You know, we added, you know, modding. We added the Steam store. We added, uh, we add lore stuff. We add, uh, you know, new heroes, special events, things like that. We, we want to make the game alive, something that's constantly growing. And it's, you know, when you look back, we, uh, we just put out the latest um, Legend uh, expansion pack, the, uh, the, the Tempest, I guess basically two years after the game first shipped. Um, so we've been going on for that long, coming out with new factions and new gameplay. Though this, I, I have to say that the, uh, the Tempest one was one that we almost didn't do. Uh, simply because of the amount of work to do the sea battles and the sea exploration. So we're sort of, you know, about a, nine months ago, we're sitting there thinking, you know, this is a huge chunk of work we're going to bite off, and we can't do a crappy job of it. Um, you know, looking at the budgets, looking at the, the fact that, yes, that Space 2 is ramping up and stuff, but we decided to do it. Um, and we're, you know, we're really happy with the way it worked out. And it's, it, it's true that it's a big hole in the game uh, and something we didn't have before. Yeah, and you know, there's no lack of people pointing that out to us as well, of course. But it's, I think it's very much part of our philosophy. I think there'll be, I don't know what they are, and if I did, I couldn't tell you, but I'm sure there'll be some pieces of game mechanic missing at the launch of Space 2. But we'll add them because you know these games are living things and we want to keep them growing and keep them interesting we want to keep the community coming back um, we want to keep making the changes that they request we want to keep adding content uh, more factions it's you know it's it's a we look at the way paradox does it and we think sometimes they go a little bit overboard with the number of dlc um, but you know it, it, in the same way, we want we want to keep the game alive as long as we can and keep it interesting and keep adding things. That's and so so I mean, endless legend. When endless legend hit early access, there was four factions. Uh, I think a twenty, you know, maybe a fifty turn limit. Um, no diplomacy whatsoever. It was really a bare bare bones of of what it is. Um, and then we just keep piling piece after piece on top of it. And luckily, with legend, we had the the architecture that let us do that. And it's even better with Space 2. So, so hopefully we'll have a, a fairly long-term development going on for that. Um, and from my point of view, it's just, you know, every time we do a new faction, it's like, here, here Jeff, give us, more, give us more toys to play with. And I go, ooh, yay, and, you know, and run around and get to come up with new things and bounce them off the designers. And the, the really great thing about the company is we get great ideas from the artists, from the designers, from the programmers, um, all sorts of great lore ideas from, uh, from the community as well. And we just, we, you know, as the game evolves and keeps growing, we get to just keep pitching ideas around and adding and subtracting and changing and, and watching it move and seeing what we can do next. And it's, it's just a, it's, it's a really fun, ongoing process. And that was like a really long answer to that question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I can't remember uh, what the, the four original early access factions were in, in, Endless Legend, but in Endless Space 2, I was surprised to see one as complex as the Vodiani being one of the first early access uh, factions, because they are so different from the others. Uh, the, the way that their nomadic 
almost, and that it's all kind of centered around their giant space arcs, which makes them both incredibly vulnerable and incredibly powerful. Um, my first game as them did not go well at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, I loved that it was a, a, such a big surprise. Rather than going for the simpler, easier to understand, more conservative races, you've got one that I assume is going to be one of the more challenging ones to play as. Yeah, it's, I think um, it's an important thing that there is, there's always a race in early access that somebody who's never done a 4X and never played an Amplitude game can be comfortable with. Um, so in this case, it's the Sofans who do their science, they're cute, they're fun, relatively simple gameplay, quick access to the tech tree, which is, you know, which is very useful. Uh, so they're easy to play. The Cravers are a little tougher because of the whole constant expansion thing. Uh, Lumeris are relatively easy as well, almost even easier because they can buy the colonies. But then, yeah, the Vojani is, you know, there should be this, this sort of like this, you know, 18 or above only sort of thing on it. Because it's really, <laughs> it, it, it's, the gameplay is, is much more complicated. Um, but that's, but we now have people who have been playing our games for four years. Um, and we can't just sort of give them kind of four relatively straightforward facts into the beginning. We have to put something out there that says, yeah, we're still doing this. We're still pushing our gameplay. We're still trying to push our boundaries. Here's something different. Try this. And, uh, you know, as always, we worked through it uh, beforehand with our VIPs and, and uh, the reactions seemed to be pretty good. It was a lot of fun to do the lore and invent them and that sort of thing. So hopefully, hopefully they'll, they'll catch on. I think they are very difficult to play. Um, uh, my games with them have ended, I think, similar to the way that your game, your first game with them ended. <laughs> but, but it's, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a challenge and I trust the designers will get the balance right and that they'll, and that they'll work out really well. But it's, yeah, again, it's it, one of the things we love to do is, is throw these curveballs and put out something there that's really asymmetric and really challenging. Because the first time I got my hands on them, it was, uh, it, it was in, in, in Paris in, in the offices and I was, I was told you probably don't want to play as these because these are quite complex and I'm like hang on a second this isn't my first rodeo um, yeah. and then it was just so embarrassing to just see myself like struggle and be like wait I don't know what I'm doing because <laughs> I had to put my hand up because that would help <laughs> yeah I have to say that's one of the one of the weak points of amplitude uh, traditionally has been our tutorials and hands-on and uh, you know easing the player into the world of our 4x's um, so yeah, the Vojani is definitely definitely not where we want to start that right now. Um, they're they're my favorite so far, though. Out of all the races uh, that that are in the early access version, they're the ones that I have the most fun playing. I think it's maybe because they remind me of the Broken Lords, who were probably my favorite faction from Endless Legend, because uh, right. the the vampire kind of and obsession with dust and things like that. I quite enjoy. Uh, but yeah, they're really tricky. <laughs> yeah, that's well, that's. There'll be some more of those coming. Don't worry. <laughs> Excellent. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's uh, again. We're gonna have to do some races that are easier to play, and some that are more complex. Um, some that are less asymmetric, and some that are more asymmetric. I mean, that's you know, that's that's just how we do it. But um, it's you know, from the from the narrative point of view, they're all um, they're all like kind of my little babies, and some of them are a little misshapen, but we love them anyway, sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, and hopefully that they'll they'll all find some level of acceptance in in some niche of players who uh, who's who's willing to torture themselves that way for for the twenty hours it takes to to play it. Have you uh, gotten to the uh, the early access at all by any chance, Rob? Or 
Yeah, no, I was, I was, I was super bummed last week where I was like, "All right, time to time to get ready for the uh, for the for the podcast," and and I started it. Uh, I fired it. I, I launched Steam on, on my Mac, and uh, it it did not it did not appear among among my options. Um, that was also an experience I had with uh, with Civ at launch, and I'll admit that was that was when I snapped and, and ordered a new PC, uh, which which should be here this week. Uh, Why did you not have a PC, Rob? What happened? Um, my PC is back in Boston, oh, and course, I'm in, LA, in Los Angeles, and my PC is very old and venerable, uh, <laughs> and the last upgrade required physically bending some metal to fit a video card in, Jesus. Uh, and so the PC is kind of... Um, I don't want to ship it at this point because, like, literally, uh, it, like a bunch of fans recently failed. It was sort of like reconstructed. Uh, it's basically kind of a Frankenstein monster now, and it like that build is going to be the build it takes to its grave. Uh, so I just decided, like, you know what, I'm going to leave it in Boston. Uh, you know, my girlfriend can use it because uh, she she plays a lot of games now. Uh, so I just I left it behind because I did not want to deal with the possibility that it could get. Uh, messed up during shipping, uh, which you know is a distant possibility, but at the same time, like given uh, <laughs> given how uh, much brutalization has happened to to get everything to fit inside that uh, in, inside that frame, uh, it's it's also not unthinkable. So I've got a new PC uh, coming here uh, hopefully this week, uh, and then and then I'll be firing it back up. I'm especially looking forward to it because um, Endless Legend is a beautiful game that really benefits from a good graphics card and uh again my little my little my little working mac my my little uh office uh macbook is it's playable like endless legend totally runs on, <laughs> on my laptop okay. uh, now whether or not you can deal with the uh is the third degree burns uh that happen on your legs uh after you've played <laughs> endless legend for an hour uh that's that's a question between you and uh and your enthusiasm for the game um i did have i did have one question by the way um just because this is kind of something i've been wondering about uh particularly with regard to shifters it sort of seemed like shifters was it was it's a cool expansion so shifters changes the way winter works uh in a lot of ways in in endless legend and i would say gives you more to do during the winter what i found interesting about it is it was sort of solving a problem that hadn't really dawned on me like because i i loved the winter mechanic like i loved the fact that like i would start sort of summoning my armies back to friendly territory uh as that 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 winter counter uh you know began to count down and i sort of loved the fact that like you'd have to allow for the possibility that like your campaigning season would be cut short that like it would be a difficult time to sort of steal a march on an opponent uh that your booming economy could sort of be you know brought to a standstill uh, for a few right. turns, and I love that as as a narrative device. I loved the way like winter sort of changed the landscape, and and the fact that like it did lead to sort of dramatic like you know retreat from Moscow type situations for armies trying <laughs> exactly. to get out of hostile territory. Uh, and so I was sort of I guess I was sort of surprised that in some ways shifters felt to me like a little bit of a retreat from what winter originally was. And I don't know maybe like. I recognized that it was making winter less of a purely pa- like it in winter was no longer enforcing sort of a passivity 
uh, into the game. It was no longer saying, like, okay, winter's here. You should really stop doing quite so much. Uh, but at the same time, I was also like, ah, this, this also feels a little bit like a second take, like perhaps a recognition that winter wasn't as awesome as I thought it was. Uh, so I'm curious what the discussion around shifters was, uh, when, when, when you were, when you were making that. Yeah, that was, um, I, I think the, the reaction to the winter mechanic generally was, um, most people said, wow, this is really cool. You know, this is unusual to actually you know, voluntarily put such breaks on the game and throw such challenges at the player. People like that uh, until, you know, when you're around turn 200 or something, and all of a sudden most of your game is in winter. And there's a lot of things, of course, there's all kinds of improvements you can build and hero skills you can get to, to you know, to, to make it easier to, to get through that. But we had an awful lot of feedback saying, you know, too much of, of winter is just me tapping the key you know, hitting end turn, waiting for it to be over so I can get back to the game again. Um, I think there might be players who are perhaps not as experienced in strategy games as the people on this podcast um, who just fa- who found winter more of a chore than of a challenge. So when we were designing shifters, we said, okay, it, we, sh- we need to do something in winter that makes winter also an interesting time to get out there to explore, to do things, rather than just a challenge that you see coming that you have to deal with and then, you know, and then get sort of get back to normal. So it's, there's, in a way I agree, in a way it was sort of um, the, the whole meta plot of Origa is dying and you must adapt is sort of, Origa's caught a bit of a cold and she'll be okay. So <laughs> you, you, you lose some of the drama that way. But um, I, I the, the feedback we got was well, particularly with the faction, which was which was very different and very interesting. The, you know, changing the the gameplay and the and the look between the seasons and that sort of thing, because the faction really went in hand with the changing of the season and the the changing in the gameplay. I think I think the package as a whole worked really well. Um, we we did get feedback saying you know winners, you know. It, it's like sort of, you know, some people love climbing those really difficult mountains to get the view from the peak. Other people would just as soon take the cable car up. You know, it sort of depends on who you are. Uh, and we, we did get some feedback saying that it made, it made winter a little bit too easy. But I think overall it added a lo- enough interesting mechanics uh, and a pretty cool new faction. So, I mean, we're pretty happy with the way it worked out ultimately. Even though it did, you know, to an extent it was overall simplifying the base game. I mean, we have to we have to accept that. Is there a is there a way to add that sort of element of where where you've got Origa's dying, you've got the change of the seasons that actually changes gameplay and changes the map visually? Um, is there a way to put that in a game like Endless Space Two, where it's in space, there are no seasons, and it's much bigger? Uh, is there a way to make it as lively? What a fascinating question. <laughs> I've put you on the spot a little bit, haven't I? Long, awkward silence. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> I'd assume um, no. So if, you, if the answer is no, that's completely fine. <laughs> um, the, the answer is it's, it's clearly something that we're looking at. I mean, we enjoyed, in all of its uh, forms, the winter effect. Uh, and also the idea that, you know, while you're playing your little conquest game, 
there was the overall backstory of the dying planet, which I think just made, um, added something just to sort of that whole, as you were speaking of, that whole sort of tapestry of, of RPG narrative goodness that you're sort of, you know, wading through. Um, so we're looking to see things that we might be able to, might be able to do like that uh, for Endless Space 2. It's clearly more difficult. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if the weather changes, who cares? Because I'm 15 billion parsecs <laughs> away. You know, it's, it doesn't affect me, right? So like one so, planet's having a chilly autumn. And you're like, so what? <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, it, it's a lot harder to impress people when they have the, the vast vacuum of space between systems. Um, so it, 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 is, it is a sort of a, yeah, we're almost going back to discussion about the, the sensation of the previous game, you know, we'd like to we'd like to find a mechanic that gives that kind of sensation of gameplay when uh, when the winter hit you in Oregon, um, and you know we have some ideas and we're working on some things and you know we'll we'll see where they go. But it's it, clearly it's I, I think I think the the reaction was positive. It was it was viewed as a tough and a surprising challenge, but but a cool one. Um, so yeah, so that's uh, we're proud of that. We're we're keeping that in our back pocket. We'll see what we can do with it. Are there going to be uh, sort of more narrative connections between like Endless Legend and Endless Space too? Because like, as I understand, like Endless Legend is in that universe. Like it's it's sort of the abandoned skunkworks planet of like the <laughs> the uh, the the alien precursor race. Uh, and it's sort of a like like secretly endless legends actually sort of a a fantasy sci-fi uh, game where sort of the the, the vestigial technology uh, is is indistinguishable from magic uh, in, in in some ways and uh, that that seems to, that seems to be the the, the fictional grounding uh, of the game. And I'm curious if we're going to see any of those threads sort of carry into the next uh, the, the next endless game. Yeah, it's uh, we we spent a lot of time actually. Um, you know, before even developing, working out the universe and, and things that are in the universe are actually in there for a reason. Um, we wanted to make grand 4X strategy games in space. And so we created the sense of history um, because it's always cool to do the Indiana Jones thing and sort of go digging through uh, the archives and into the old temples and that sort of thing. We wanted to have dust because we made a, a conscious decision that it would not be uh, pure science fiction, but more science fantasy, right? It's, it's Star Wars, not Star Trek. There's a little bit of magic there. Um, so, you know, we made a lot of these conscious decisions when we were developing things, and that's, yeah, and so absolutely. And this legend is very much a, you know, fantasy on the surface, but with a sort of science fantasy core and, and setting to it. And, and absolutely, it's, it's the same universe. Dust remains dust. And there will be there will be threads in in uh, in endless space too, that will be echoes or have some relation to endless legend, um, which was itself, of course, the planet where Dungeon of the Endless took place. So yeah, you'll see you'll see things popping up, references, factions, um, things like that. It's it's we've been really happy with the universe and we've gotten pretty good reaction to it. So we're we're definitely going to keep playing around in this one for a while. It's uh, it's. It's been um, it's been a pretty gratifying actually experience for the for the design team. Riga's so, actually there as well, isn't it? You can actually go to the planet of, of Endless Legend. Yeah, it's uh, we one of the things we added in Space Two was uh, there's a number of sort of epic or legendary planets um, that you may run across while you're exploring. 
So, uh, you know, sort of like a wonder, a natural wonder that you can run across. So, yeah, it's, it's an example. of We're trying to put more of these interesting little lore bits in the game just so while you're simply exploring or, you know, conquering systems, you, you bounce off against a little bit of lore, a little bit of texture, a little bit of background. It just makes things more interesting. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be cooking up a lot of things like that in the, in the design kitchen. All right, I think I think that will do it for our uh, endless discussion. Uh, Jeff, before you go, what, what's the next thing that, that people should be looking forward to uh, in the in the endless series? Are there any more endless legend expansions? Uh, what's what's the next thing that we can look forward to rolling out for for endless space two? Um, as far as endless legend goes, we're for the moment we're waiting on that because we're in uh, early access. Um, we have pretty much have all hands on deck for for endless space two right now. Um, we are going to be scheduling a number of updates during the alpha beta process leading up to the gold, uh, the release version in 2017. I can't give you a date because it doesn't exist. Um, but there'll be, you know, we'll be adding in by the time, I guess the release date itself will be the eighth faction. So between now and then bit by bit during early access, we'll be adding at least two, maybe three other factions. Um, so there'll be a lot of content coming out bit by bit over the next few months for Endless Space 2. For Endless Legend, we're, um, we're waiting and seeing. We're seeing how the, how the, 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 the player reaction is to the, um, to the Tempest expansion, to see how the, how the market reaction is. Um, and it's, you know, there's still places we can go with that. The architecture is solid enough that we could add some more things. It's really just going to be a question of, resources you know how much time do you want to keep endless legend going versus what's the next thing you want to jump into so it's hard to say right now we're definitely looking at it but there's there's nothing i can tell you sadly for uh, for legend um but hey if we hear enough noise you know it'd be fun to do okay cool uh so i think we'll, we'll leave the discussion there um so Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Uh, you can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. Uh, this topic in particular was brought to you by our Patreon backers during our monthly topic vote. Uh, sometime in the Jurassic period uh, for this particular for this particular episode, uh, you, you can stop. You can stop sending us letters. Uh, it's happened. Uh, I hope it, I hope it lives up to it. Uh, I hope it lives up to the to the to the hype. And and I think we had a we had a great discussion. Uh, we we're so happy to to have you on the show, Jeff, to uh, to really add, add something uh, to to this podcast. Uh, it was fantastic, sort of going over the the background of the series and the the evolution of of your thinking on the endless series. So, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It a, it's a lot of fun for me. I hope I just didn't uh, babble too much. I hope something coherent came out of it. And, uh, you know, um, I really appreciate the time. Thanks again. It was the perfect amount of babbling. <laughs> yeah. And if it wasn't, that's, that's why we have our producer, actually, is to make sure that by the time it reaches audience ears, uh, the, the, the babbling uh, to, to content ratio is, is uh, perfect. Uh, anywhere, you can learn more about the, uh, the Patreon at patreon.com slash 3MA. And uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of 3MA. Until then, for Fraser Brown, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. <laughs>